Should we bow our heads for closing prayer? Wow. I mean, I, I know that I'm biased, but wow. Worthy is the Lamb. You know, this past week, I, I've, I've had a lot to kind of process. Uh, I spent most of this week, I kind of took this week slowly, um, because last week was just kind of a... Uh, an explosion of emotions. Um, but this week, I, I, I took a lot of time to try to process uh, just God's leading and, and His plan, and, and it's almost just amazing, the plan that God has for us. I mean, I, I, I recently was informed that my grandfather, who just recently passed, uh, his grandfather was one of the founding members of the first Alpharetta Church back in the late 1800s, like 1890-something. Uh, Michelle Fontaine found that out. She's been digging into it. She's been updating me on my family history that I did not know anything about. So uh, it's kind of crazy just how God would circumnavigate this you know, sinner from Texas into this position in 2020 during this time. And, uh, and one instant that started, that kept coming to my mind, because I know that we have many visitors online, uh, is I was sitting in my dad's uh, house in Australia as I was kind of pursuing what this thing called Christianity was. And I remember finding a sermon online. I knew nothing about the pastor, I knew nothing about the church, but I just found a sermon. And it was one of those long sermons. It was like a, a communion sermon almost, where it was an hour and a half sermon. And I thought, I don't have the attention span to watch this. But I sat down and I, and I tried. And before I knew it, it was over. And I had no idea what had just happened. I couldn't even tell you what the, the content of the sermon was about. But I remember one moment so clearly, and it was where the pastor looked directly into the camera and welcomed the visitors and said that God has a plan for all of us and so it's not by coincidence even though we might think that it is we might think that it's just our regular routine to show up wake up Sabbath morning and, and come to church or, or wake up and tune in online but God has a plan and every day he's orchestrating that plan to bring us closer to him and so as I thought about that and, and thought, well, you know, what, what was a passage in Scripture that we could go to? I decided to go to a passage that uh, for many years has brought more questions than answers. In fact, it doesn't make sense that it would be in the account. And that is in John chapter 2. Uh, if, you, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 2. You've noticed that we're not utilizing our screens. Uh, I think we had a fuse kind of go out, and so we're just, we just said, you know, we're not even going to worry about it today. Uh, so, so we're just going to be in the old school, bringing up, if you have a Bible or if you have it on your phone, I'll be reading it from the New American Standard Bible. 
John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, The word of the Lord says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him, and when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. The beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. This is an interesting story. This is a story that I've heard probably a total of three sermons on in my whole life. I actually looked this past week to try to find a sermon to see what other preachers tended to preach from in this passage, because this just doesn't quite make sense to me. And when we read it, we we need to orient ourselves to not only the culture, but the greater book of John in its entirety. See, John, this is the disciple John, the one who was called as a, as a fisherman who left his nets to follow Jesus. He's considered a, a son of thunder. He's the youngest disciple. And the Gospel of John is most likely the final book written that we have in the Bible. It was probably written around A.D. 95 to A.D. 100. So it's the last, it's the final, it's the period, it's the the exclamation point to the story of Jesus in Scripture. It's written after Revelation. It's written after the New Testament letters of Paul as he goes on this missionary journey to proclaim the gospel to the world. And so we need to ask ourselves, why would John after so much has already been shared about Jesus, actually the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, writing to a church in Colossae, he says that the gospel is bearing fruit in you, the church members of Colossae, as well as the whole world. The gospel of Jesus is is traveling at light speed and is going throughout all the world. So why then would John add his story of Jesus to the pot? What would be the purpose for it? There's the other three Gospels. You have Matthew, you have Mark, you have Luke. So why would John say, well, I'm going to write my side of the story? Well, actually, he tells us outright at the end of his story of Jesus that the reason he has written these things, he actually says that there, are so, there were so many things that Jesus did. There were these miracles that Jesus did that aren't included in Scripture But what we have shared, there's a reason for it, and it's so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we would have life in his name. And so what that means is that when we approach the Gospel of John, we need to recognize that John has written everything with the intentionality that it will give us life. That's the purpose. And so my belief is, is that if we do this, if we do this right, if we open up our hearts and say, okay, okay, Lord, you brought us here. This was 
part of your plan that we will leave here with life. Amen? So John, chapter 2, why tell this story? John starts his gospel radically different than the others, and he's the only one who tells of Jesus going to a wedding. He's the only one. Now, I don't know about you, but my picture of following Jesus was um, very boring, as if you couldn't do anything fun. You couldn't play a prank, you'd get in trouble for that. You couldn't laugh at anything, you'd get in trouble for that. But yet, here is Jesus, and where is he? He's at a wedding. Now, I've never been to a boring wedding. If anything, I've been to some lively weddings where you almost wish they were boring because it kind of got out of hand. But here is Jesus, and he's at a wedding, and in Jewish time, in, in his day and age, the cultural practice was it would be a week long of celebrations. It'd be seven days. And the, the host would have expensed everything, would have given all of their resources to provide the most wonderful celebration. And so here is Jesus at a wedding, but there's a conflict. See, they've, won, they've run out of wine. Now, we read this from the 20th century perspective, and we think, okay, you know, this is, this is the, the wine that when we're passing through a grocery store and we see it, right? Or, you know, there's that, that wine aisle, per se, or there's the winery, or etc. But our wine is uh, distilled in a way that has higher uh, alcoholic content, whereas this wine was diluted uh, fermented grape juice. See, they didn't have the refrigerators that we have. They didn't have the same process. And so when you would make wine, when you would make grape juice, there's no difference in the Greek. It's, just, it's either fermented or unfermented because there was no way to tell other than when it was made. And so they would dilute it. And as a, as a Jew, there are passages in the Old Testament that talk about uh, alcoholic consumption. They talk about abuse of alcohol and how it leads to many woes. And so we know that this cannot be the same alcoholic wine that, that we see in our stores. No, in fact, this is diluted, most likely two to four cups of water to every one cup of semi-fermented or in the fermentation process grape juice, which means that you would have expected it to have lasted a lot longer because it's not just like they're filling up a cup of wine and then handing it out to everyone. No, they're diluting it with water. And so they've already run out. This would bring tremendous shame to whoever the host is. And notice what happens. It's, it's, it's almost fascinating, this little interaction. It says in verse 3, John chapter 2, verse 3, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. It almost seems like Mary comes up. We know that Jesus' mother is named Mary. And so Mary comes up to Jesus and says, Hey, they, they've run out of this thing. They've run out of wine. The beverages are out. Could you imagine being at a wedding where they run out of food or, or, you know, or drinks? I mean, in the South, it'd be like running out of sweet tea, right? It'd be like the worst thing imaginable. I mean, how dare you? What? Like, it's... I mean, it'd be a crisis, right? You, could you imagine all of the, the individuals who have helped put this thing together that are running around because they're trying to problem solve, and so you can just tell that there's like a franticness, right? You ever been in a situation where something is going south really quickly and you can kind of see people start to, uh, you know, try to, they're processing in their brain how to problem solve it, but trying to hold everything together. And so she runs up to Jesus, and she says, they have no wine. Not, hey, could you help with this? She just states it as a fact, as if she assumes that Jesus is going to do something. And look at Jesus' response. I mean, this is, oh man, if we said this to, if I said this to my mom, Jesus said to her, woman, 
What does that have to do with us? I don't know about you, but uh, I, I have a feeling that if many of us said that to our parent, there would be some pain afterwards. And it might linger for some time, depending on the punishment. And so when we read this, we, we tend to look at it from our cultural context, and it seems so odd, but in fact, the, the Greek word there is gunai. So the Greek word that Jesus, is, that Jesus uses is gunai to address his mother, and it's this term of respect. It's not him saying, woman, what are you doing? Why are you asking me this? It's, it's oh, actually the NIV translates this because uh, we, we naturally don't, we, we want to make Jesus, uh, uh, what's the word, um, not as harsh, right? We don't want to make Jesus as harsh as he sometimes comes across in the New Testament. And so the NIV actually translates this as dearest mother. So Jesus hears what his mom has to say, but he's thinking about something else. Now, have you ever been to a wedding? For, for those of you who are single or, or aren't married, uh, when you go to a wedding and you're single, you tend to think of something. Your own wedding. I remember the first time that that happened to me. It was my, uh, it was, uh, I almost said uncle, it was my cousin, Andrew, and his wife, Becca's wedding, and they were getting married up in Maine, and it was beautiful. If you've ever been to Maine, if you've never been to Maine, highly recommend it. If you've ever been to Maine, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, the, the ocean is, like, right there, and it's the coastal seaside, and they were getting married in this, like, stone chapel, and it was just, oh, it was gorgeous. And it was the first time ever that I had actually been in a wedding, and I started to look around, and I started to think about something. What would my wedding be like? And I started to think about, well, what food would I have? And, you know, I was like, okay, well, I'm Adventist, so there's got to be some vegetarian options. And then I was like, well, do we just do a haystack bar? Or, I mean, I started to process, like, on a legitimate level, for the first time ever in my life, what would my wedding be like? And so I started to go through, well, what beverages and sweet tea would have definitely been one of them, because, you know, it's just part of, part of my heart as a Southerner. And, you know, then there's the question of dancing, no dancing, who gets the invite, what about that family member that kind of causes a ruckus, but you kind of feel obligated because they're family. You know, I started to go through all of this process, and then I came to the simple, the, the, just the simplest conclusion ever, that I didn't want to worry about it, because it was stressing me out, and I wasn't even, even going to get married anytime soon. So then I get to meet Carissa, and I remember calling my dad after, like, our first date and saying, hey, I'm going to marry this girl. And, you know, we kind of have some dialogue back and forth. My dad knows me super well, and, and so he knew that I wasn't just kind of crazy in love or anything like that, but I'd kind of, I knew that I wanted to marry her, even after one date. And we were talking about it, and I, I shared with him the conclusion that I came to as I sat at my cousin's wedding, thinking about my wedding, which was, I really only have one requirement, and Carissa knows this very well. I don't care what our house looks like. I don't care what it looks like on the inside. She can decorate it as she wants. I don't really care uh, if she wants me to do the grocery shopping or, or if she wants to, uh, whatever food, you know, et cetera. I have one requirement, and it's that she just lets me live with her. That's it. That's the only requirement. So whenever there's a fight, which there aren't, but whenever there is one, you know, uh, it's just like, okay, you know, as long as I can stay here, I'll even pay the bills. But whatever, just let me stay here, right? I mean, that's, it's simple, super simple. And I came to that conclusion by thinking about my wedding day like several years before that, that whoever I wanted to marry, I just, I just wanted to have one ask, that they just let me live with them. That's it. Very simple. 
And Jesus, obviously, he, he's in thought, and his mother has interrupted him because there's an abruptness to his answer. She comes up to him and says, they have no wine. They've run out. There's a state of crisis. And his response is, dearest mother or woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. See, Jesus is thinking of his wedding, but his wedding is not like yours and, and mine. His wedding is his death. The Bible talks about this all the time of the church being the bride of Christ and Christ being the bridegroom, the groom. And this marriage, right? In fact, the, the Apostle Paul, when he writes to uh, Christians in, in the New Testament as he's on these missionary journeys and he talks to husbands, he says, love your wife as Christ has loved the church. And so there's this parallelism of Jesus thinking of his wedding. Well, what is, his, what is the day of his wedding? Well, it's talked about as his hour. My hour has not yet come. See, for Jesus, he's thinking of his purpose. And his purpose is to save you and I to, by bearing our sin, by taking our shame and our guilt upon the cross. And so Mary interrupts him, and he, thinking of his hour, says, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And so verse 5, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Have you ever asked God for something, and then you just kind of wait to see if he's going to make the first move to kind of answer it because you don't want to be let down. And so you just, you say something, you say a prayer, and then you just kind of wait to see if God is going to do something. Mary here has asked Jesus to do something, asked him to manifest his glory, and she's not waiting for him to make his first move. In fact, it sounds like he's not going to do it, but she's already acting in faith. She's already acting in obedience. She comes to the, the waiters and says, whatever he tells you, do it. And then Jesus does something absolutely amazing, and it's, it really starts him on this war path that he's about to wage with the religious leaders. Verse 6, Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Jesus' solution is, here are these stone water pots that are going to be used for Jewish purification because the Passover is on the horizon. In fact, we didn't read it, but in verse 13, it says the Passover of the Jews was near. And in the Passover, the Passover was this symbolic event of God bringing the Israelites out of slavery and he would pass over, it was the night of their deliverance, and he went through all of Egypt and he killed the firstborn, except for those who had blood painted over their door handles, the blood of a lamb, to signify that it is the blood of Christ that covers us. And so here are these pots that are about to be used ceremonially to help the Jewish leaders and help just the Jewish citizens become clean so that they can participate in the Passover. And he looks at these pots and he says, here's an opportunity. And so he tells the waiters to, to take those and to fill them with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And then he tells them to draw water out of them and take it to the head waiter, knowing that he's going to turn it to wine. 
Now, we read this and we think, okay, this is interesting. That's just kind of like a factual thing. Except, most of the Bible, most of the Old Testament, has, have these ceremonial laws, right? In fact, the book of Leviticus is like all about the ceremonial law of how we can approach God. And there was a purpose for the ceremonial law. See, you and I have this problem. We sin. And sin, the best definition of sin in the Bible is 1 John 3, 4. Sin is the transgression of God's law, the Ten Commandments, God's law. And the best uh, other definition is love is the fulfillment of the law, Romans 13, 10. So if we take those two verses and we put them next to each other, sin is the breaking of God's law and love is the fulfillment of God's law, then sin is anti-love. So selfishness is anti-love. It's me first, you second. Whereas love is you first, me second. It's just priorities shaped differently. Selfishness, it's me first. Self-preservation, you can come in second. Love is you first, me second. Right? So there's this ceremonial law that was to help them understand this. That they were selfish, naturally bent towards sin or selfishness, anti-love, and that they needed a savior. And so they would go through this process to become ceremonially clean, even though it didn't actually cleanse you, it was symbolic of what Christ was going to do, so that you could stand before God. That was the whole process. The ritual was to help you approach God in good faith. And Jesus takes this, in fact, this is the first of seven consecutive miracles that John tells us about. And the first is always the most important, right? It's the first, you, want to, you want to make sure your first step is, is a good step. You want, to, you want to have a good foot forward or good, get a good foot in the door, right? We have all these phrases. And so Jesus, he takes these ceremonial Jewish custom purification pots and he utilizes them to help someone just provide drink at a wedding. I mean, it's almost, this, it's like this tiniest little thing. I mean... To, to a, a first century uh, Jew's mind, this is, this is unforgivable. I mean, how dare you, Jesus? Like, what are you thinking? And yet for Jesus, I mean, oh man, there are so many commentators, so many commentaries that they like, they just breeze through this passage because they just cannot understand how Jesus would do something so little that he would, he would seek to answer such a small request with such mighty power. I mean, they've just run out of wine. Well, that's, that's on them. That's their fault. They didn't have enough to provide refreshments for the full week of celebration. That's on them. Why would you manifest your glory here at this incident? But for Jesus, Jesus values relationship over ritual. Jesus values relationship over ritual. You see, in the, in the Old Testament... When Israel would get so caught up in trying to keep God's law, God would provide a prophet, and that prophet would come, and it might be Hosea, or it might be Amos, or it might be Malachi, and that prophet, being God's mouthpiece, would say, I'm tired of all of your religious assemblies. I'm tired of you coming to church. I'm tired of you singing all these worship songs. I'm tired of the sermons. I'm tired of all this stuff when you're not being relationally good to your neighbor. I'm tired of all of this ritualistic religion when you're not loving your neighbor. And so Jesus starts to wage war on that ritualistic religion, starting in chapter 2 of John. 
He takes this, these purification pots, these, these stone uh, water jars, or these stone jars that would be used for ceremonially clean, uh, cleaning yourself for the Passover, and he utilizes them for, for a small ask, for just a small prayer of sorts. It makes me think of this story that I heard. It's a children's story, but it tells the time of this young girl, and she's so thirsty. She's, I mean, just tremendously thirsty. And it's the middle of the night. And so what do you do? You're thirsty, but it's the middle of the night, and, you know, your parents have worked long days, and so are you going to get up and try to go around and, and find it in the middle of the night to get some water for yourself or, or whatever, Right? And she goes to her father, but her father is not just any regular individual. Her father is the most important man in the kingdom. It's the king. I mean, this is the king who sits on his throne and hears issues of his citizens time and time and time and time again. But this daughter wakes up in the middle of the night and goes and asks the king, wakes the king up for a glass of water. And then it tells the story of a man who's uh, fire has gone out and has no firewood and, and goes and knocks on the door of all of his neighbors to ask for some firewood because it's winter and he's cold and his family is cold and he's knocked on enough doors that eventually he realizes nobody has any firewood, nobody's coming to the door, so what can he do? He's in this state of disarray and the story tells of this, this line of thinking where he, his last resort is, do I ask the king? And he says no. And he goes back to his house his home, and he and his family freeze to death. It's a, it's a terrible, I mean, it's a children's story. I read it in a children's book a long time ago, a collection of short stories. It was the worst ending ever. I thought, you know, all children's stories had to end with, you know, butterflies and rainbows. It was, it was horrendous. And then I realized what the author was getting at. Only a child would ask a king for the glass of water in the middle of the night. And Jesus says that we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless we become like little children. You see, we tend to think of, oh, this is too big to ask of God. God, help me polish off my resume for that interview. We might think, okay, you know, yes, God, this is a momentous occasion, right? This is, my, this is a momentous occasion. We need this. We need this job to be able to provide for our family. We might ask God for assistance on that. But what about, God, help me with this test? Or, God, just help me to have strength today to engage in that difficult conversation. Whatever it is, nothing is too small for God when we recognize that we are a child. Only a child wakes up the king in the middle of the night for a glass of water. Only a child. Nobody else would do that. Nobody else would have the, the boldness to do that. And here, Jesus answers such a simple request. They've run out of wine. He's thinking about his wedding. He's preoccupied with his moment of death, and yet he still comes through. Because why? God, Jesus values relationship over ritual. And so Jesus tells them in verse 7 to fill the water pots with water, so they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw out some now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, and this is, this is a beautiful line, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. You ever get in that friendship, and it's just amazing at the beginning, and then you start to find faults in them? 
Or you ever get that job and it just is amazing at the beginning and then you start to realize, ah, you know, my boss actually has some issues or, you know, et cetera, right? You ever go to that new school and it's amazing at first and then all, eventually it starts to, to wear on you? I mean, it's just natural. It's almost, like a, it's almost like a natural law, right? Where we just naturally put our best foot forward. We want to present ourselves so well, but over time we can't keep up. And for many of us, our Christian experience was so rich, it was like almost on fire at the beginning, and then as we go longer into it, it becomes dried up. It becomes stale. Because we start to focus on the rituals instead of the relationships. See, every man serves good wine. It's best practice. That's the, that's the habit. That's what you do. At the beginning, you serve the good wine. It's, just, it's custom. It's culture. It's just what you do. And then when people have come and drunk and, and the, the festivities are, are going on, you start to bust out because everyone's tired. They're not going to be as judgmental because it's day six and they're dealing with uncle so-and-so that's telling them stories and they just want out of it or, or whatever it is. They'll be a little bit more lenient, but here with God, every day is fresh. With Jesus, every day is the best. Every day. Not... This day's good, oh, but tomorrow's not. Uh, uh, no, every day is fresh. That's Jesus. But this is the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glories, or his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, this is a great story, and there's a lot of points here, but why would John introduce us to Jesus with this story when he wants us to believe to have life? This is the first of seven miracles. In fact, Jesus just starts out, I love the Gospel of John. I like Mark, I like John. John, I feel like, could have been a hockey player. And the reason for this is because there's a very significant point as to why hockey fights happen. See, in in a hockey fight, there are three main reasons. I preached a whole sermon on this, but I'll condense it for you. There are three main reasons a hockey fight happens. See, you can't call a timeout in the middle of the game. It's not like basketball where you can just provide a technical foul and then they go shoot free throws because you're getting beat and you need to just get a whistle. You can't do that. You can't just call timeout in the middle of the game. So what your coach does is says, well, man, we're losing momentum. And they'll tap someone on the shoulder and say, hey, go get us a fight because we need a whistle. We need, we need to pause things. And so if you get tapped, I mean, your job is you go out and you, you pick a fight to slow things down. Well, then there's another reason, which is, you know, we get to police ourselves. So if so-and-so is, is running their mouth and throws a cheap shot at our best player, well, we're going to make them pay for it because the ref can't technically do anything. The ref can throw them in the penalty box, yeah, but, I mean, that's two minutes, right? What if they permanently injure one of our teammates? So we're not going to let that happen, right? So we police the game ourselves as hockey players. And then the third one is the most fascinating. Say it's a very big game. Say you, you really need to get the win in order to make the playoffs or whatever it is. So you insert your fighter into the lineup. And by inserting your fighter into the lineup, you're sending a a statement to the opposing team that this is going to be a battle. I mean, you just stated it right out there. You know, that's like meeting the girl that you're going to marry and just first date saying, I love you. I mean, it's just almost like, whoa, 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 that's that's a little too quickly. So you just insert the fighter and you've told the other team, hey, it's going to be a battle. And so they insert their fighter because they know that it's going to be a battle. Because you want to start the game off with all the momentum. It's the most crucial moment in the hockey fight, or in the, in the hockey game, is that fight at the beginning. Because you want to take the momentum at the very beginning. John, he, the other Gospels have been written. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they've been written. They tell, they tell different aspects of the ministry of Jesus. John inserts Jesus right at the beginning, going to war with the ritualistic religion of that day. What do I mean by this? Well, Jesus goes into the temple in the next scene, and he starts flipping tables because his temple has become anything other than a house of prayer. He goes on performing miracle after miracle after miracle, going to war with the ritualistic religion of the day because they had lost sight of something. And so what I believe John is doing is he is introducing Jesus as this, uh, as this name for God in the Old Testament, the Lord of hosts. See, in the Old Testament, you have this name that is given to God, and it's the Lord of hosts. And that name is used whenever God is about to deliver his people from a battle. It's when God goes and fights on your behalf. Lord of hosts. Well, it's interesting because in Isaiah chapter 25, Isaiah talks about this Lord of hosts that I think shows us where John is thinking. Isaiah chapter 25, just verse 1 through verse uh, 8 It says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you, for you have been a a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall, like heat and drought. You subdue the uproar of, of, of uh, foreigners like heat by the shadow of a cloud. The song of the ruthless is silenced. And then he says this. This is what Isaiah says. The Lord of hosts. So that fighting Lord, the Lord that delivers his people from a battle, will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all people, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. John is telling us that the Jesus that we're reading about is on a war path. He's tired of people valuing, of his people valuing rituals over relationships. And he's come back to set it right. That's the type of battle that, that God goes to war in. That's the Lord of hosts. And so we see in John chapter 2 when Jesus does a seemingly just very small miracle, turns water into wine. John is actually using it to establish that this Jesus is the God that goes to war on our behalf. That he goes out and fights that battle. That he's the one who vanquishes the enemy. He's the one that is worthy to be praised. There's a story that... Often we're told, maybe as, as kids, I even knew it from, I think, from Veggie Tales, like way, way back in the day. Um, so it's the story of David and Goliath. Many, many followers of Jesus have heard this story, and I absolutely cannot 
say this with stronger words other than I, I really hate the way that that story gets applied most of the time. Because the way that that story gets applied is we need to be like David. If we have enough faith, then we can be like David and we'll go and conquer Goliath. When in reality, we're much more like the Israelites when we face a Goliath. We're trembling. We're fearful. We're looking for anyone else to step in. We don't want to go and fight. And David is a representation of Jesus. Who when we're on the sideline, when we're fearful, when that giant is staring us right in the face, he's the Lord of hosts that steps out on our behalf. And after the giant has been slain, all of the Israelites in the story of David and Goliath, they all run to go and conquer the rest of the Philistines. Why? Because David conquered their Goliath. And we're able to meet the challenges of every single day because the Lord of hosts has gone before us and vanquished the only enemy that really had any hold on us, which was death. That's the Lord of hosts. But he's also a Lord that answers the smallest of our prayers. Man, that's some good news. Will you pray with me? Father, we want to thank you because, Lord, we've looked at a, at a rather interesting chapter. Lord, it, it's interesting that John would, would be the only one who would tell of this miracle. But when we, when we look at it within its greater context, we understand that he was just establishing you as the God that cares so much more about relationships. Lord, you value relationships over just even the showing up to, to church. You value relationships over our Bible reading plans. You value relationships over our tithe uh, habits. Lord, you value that relationship. Ultimately, everything is a means to an end to help us to have that relationship with you. And Lord, I think of Hebrews chapter 10 where it says that we can come boldly before your throne with a free conscience because of the blood of Christ. And ultimately, that's what that wine pointed towards was the blood of Jesus. And so, Father, whatever challenges we might be facing, whatever the world is trying to throw at us, just may we remember that you are the Lord of hosts and that you have already conquered every giant, and in fact, the greatest giant, which is death. Lord, we love you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen.